Brother, this week, my little girl told me, she said, Dad, I wish, I wish God would speak to me. I wish I could hear from God. And it was a beautiful, teachable moment for me because I was able to say, well, He does. He has. And her eyes got real big and, and, and she said, she said, really? I said, yeah. I said, you know, whenever we read the Bible, we're reading God's Word spoken to us. And her eyes got real big. She said, really? I said, yeah. God has spoken to us. And He's spoken to us through His written Word. If you have your Bibles this morning, open up to the book of Job, chapter 1, as we look at everybody's favorite Thanksgiving passage. Job, chapter 1. You know, as we, we come to the part uh, of this part of the year whenever we, we give thanks uh, for the things that God has blessed us with, it's easy for us to look at, at all we've been blessed with. It's easy for us to look at friends, family, loved ones, and as, as, as we'll go a little bit later on after the service this morning, and we'll share a meal, and we'll sit around, and we'll, we'll eat, and we'll enjoy each other's fellowship. It's easy to give thanks for, for all the blessings that God has given us. But this morning, what I want to focus on is, is sometimes the adversity and the hardships that the Lord brings upon us and the thankfulness. Because, you know, the Scripture says that we are to be thankful in all circumstances. Job chapter 1, verse 6. <clears throat> now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered, the Lord and said, From roaming about the earth and walking around upon it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge of protection about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his possessions, and they have increased in the land. But put forth thy hand now, and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse thee to thy face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand upon him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now it happened on the day when, the sons, when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. A messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked. And took them, and they also slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. 
Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came before him to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about the earth and walking around upon it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, for there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil? And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incite me against him and ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all this man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth thy hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a pot shirt and scraped himself while he was sitting among the ashes. His wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Let's pray. God, is, as we read your word, Oh, may we hear from you. May we hear not what the preacher has to say. May we hear not what preconceived notions we've come into this service with. Lord, may we hear your word. May we hear it spoken clearly, and may we hear it spoken loudly. Lord, this morning, may you convict us of our sin. May you convict us of our complacency. May you convict us of our entitlement. Lord, this morning, may we find ourselves in need of a great Savior. And may we cry out to Jesus. Lord, speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we start the book of Job, it's an interesting dynamic that we find ourselves in. There's this, this conversation between God and Satan. Now that, you know, that in and of itself ought to, ought to you know, raise some eyebrows. And, and you know, here is, here is God having this conversation with Satan. Did, did, did they sit down for coffee all that? I mean, what, what's going on here? And, and there's not a lot that, that we do know. Uh, we do know, however, uh, that, that there was a, uh, a communication between, uh, between God and Satan. Uh, we understand that the book of Job is a book of poetry. We understand that the book of Job is written uh, to convey deep biblical principles. That is not to say that the events in the book of Job did not take place. But as we, as we read through the book of Job, uh, there's a couple of things that I want us to glean. First of all, we should realize and we should be thankful for the very principle that begins the book of Job. Go back with me, if you will, to the book of Job, chapter 1. Verse six, and I want us to understand. I want us to understand the nature of this conversation. Verse six. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. It was God Himself who is sitting on the throne, and all of creation is subject, and all of creation is under His control. 
And nothing happens outside of the sovereign hand of God. Satan approaches God and asks for permission to, to bring calamity and bring adversity amongst, uh, uh, among Job and among his family and among all that he has. We should realize and we should be thankful that God is indeed sovereign. That he is the one who is in control and that nothing happens outside of his control. And as we are undergoing life, life is bumpy. Life is, is eventful. Life, life happens, and, and if, if you're not careful, you'll get to the end of your life, you'll get to the end of your days, and, and you will have missed everything that has gone on. Because life is just, it's just like that. It happens in the midst of everything else that you've got going on. You... you you plan for retirement. You you put all this money away. You 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 build a, a nest egg, and then life happens in the midst. You you have children, and you you plan your family, and in the midst of planning your family, life happens. It ought to be an encouragement to us as we get to this season of Thanksgiving that God is sovereign. That not a raindrop falls to the ground, not a leaf falls off a tree without the the foreordination of the God. That Satan, nor any other demonic being, nor any other spiritual being has dominion over God. That everything is subject to His control. Flip over with me, if you will, just a couple of pages. Psalm 89, verse 11. Psalm 89, verse 11. The scripture tells us in Psalm 89, it says that the heavens are thine. And the earth is also thine, the world and all it contains, and thou hast founded them. That God is the one who is in control. God is the author and perfecter of faith. God is the creator. God is the one who is in control. Satan is not in control. The, 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 the politicians are not in control. As, as, much as, as much as they would like to think, the Democrats are not in control. The Republicans are not in control. This, this world is under the control and the, is under the sovereign hand of God. No president, no king, no government is under, has any control or any sovereignty apart from the sovereignty of God. Psalm 135, verse 6. Just a few pages over, the psalmist writes, and it was much encouragement to him as he writes in Psalm 135. He says this, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and earth the seas, and all of the death. Let that sink in for just a moment. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. It ought to be an encouragement to us as we read Job that God is in control. While God is in control, the enemy is a deceiver. He schemes constantly to destroy us. You know, Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that, that, that we should put on the full armor of God. In Ephesians chapter 6, 11, it tells us why we should put on the full armor of God so that we will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. Whenever we were younger, my brother and I, we had a clubhouse in our backyard. My dad had built us this clubhouse and, and he actually built it on land that wasn't ours. And, and uh, we... We had this clubhouse, and behind us we had these woods. And and if you talk to our neighbor, uh, his dad owned the woods. Uh, but but uh, we had this 
clubhouse. And we would sit back in the back of the clubhouse and, and we would devise these plans. Because we had enemies in the neighborhood. You know, they were they were they, they were neighborhood kids and, and depending upon depending upon the day, some days they were our friends and we'd play football with them and, and, and the other days they were our enemies. And and one day we had we had schemed up this this plan. And we were going to get the, 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 the neighbor kids. And not that there was this battle or, or, or anything we were preparing for, but, but in our minds, we were scheming. We were preparing destruction for our enemies. And so what we did was we dug this, this deep hole right, on, right in front of our clubhouse. And we dug this deep hole and we, we put sticks on top of the, on, on, on top of the, the, the hole and, and we covered the hole with sticks and then we put, we put leaves and, 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 and palmetto branches on top of the hole so we covered it up and didn't really cover it up because there was this, this dry, this, this big area of dirt and then this one pile of leaves and, and palmetto. So, so, I mean, if, if, if you were... Not an idiot. You would see that there's something there. I don't want to step there. But but we had schemed of how we could we we, we could get the, the bad guys that were in our neighborhood. You know, a few few hours go by and we forget that's there, and we get out of the clubhouse. We go running through the woods and we fall right in the hole that, that, that we get dug for our enemies. But I tell that story because. As, as, as kids, we're always planning, we're always devising a, a way to, to, to accomplish what we want to accomplish. My little boy during the game yesterday, he came sneaking under my chair and he grabbed my phone and I saw him and I said, what are you doing? He said, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to plug up your phone, Dad. It was dying. I'm, I'm going to plug it up for you. <laughs> no, he wasn't. But... As kids, we're always devising a plan, and even as adults, we're always scheming, devising a plan to accomplish what we want. The enemy is no different. He is scheming. In fact, John 10.10 tells us that that the the enemy is like a roaring lion, roaming around, seeking those whom he'll devour. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. That he is constantly scheming against you. And I believe that he will entreat the Lord for an opportunity to bring adversity and calamity in our lives. We see that evident in the book of Job. What I want us to point out, or what I want to point out to us from the Scripture, go back to Job chapter 1. Satan comes to God and says, hey, the reason Job is such a godly man is because he's got all this stuff. I mean, if I had, if I had camels and donkeys and oxen and, and land, and you think... Preacher, you really want camels, oxen, donkey, and land? But in that time, in that time, what that amounted to was unbelievable wealth, unbelievable prosperity, unbelievable fame, unbelievable fortune. And so let me let me put it in 21st century terms for you. If you had millions of dollars in your 401k, if you had land and, and you had property and you had real estate and you had you had cars and you had you had positions and you had you had employees working for you and you had servants and you had everything you could possibly want would it be easy to bless God absolutely 
So Satan says, well, the reason that Job is such a godly man is because you've given, you've given him all this stuff. God knew the character of Job, and he said, take it from him. The providence and the protection of God did not insulate Job from adversity. Notice, God gave Satan license to strip everything from Job. Job's suffering was not apart from the protection and the providence of God. God's providence and God's protection doesn't mean an absence from hardship. Throughout Scripture, it is clear that Israel is God's chosen people. Throughout Scripture, it is clear that God's hand is upon the Israelite people. There is no people in the history of the world, there is no nation, no ethnic group in the history of humanity that has ever suffered exile and remained a nation except one people group, the nation of Israel. They are the only people group, they are the only nation in the history of civilization. From the Mesopotamians and the Samaritans to the Egyptians to the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans to to the great Ottoman Empire to the Orient. There is no civilization, there is no people group in all of humanity that has ever suffered exile and remained a people group except the nation of Israel. Why? Because they are God's chosen people. Because God has said, I will make a great nation out of you. Whenever God made a covenant with Abraham, and He said, I will make you a great nation, and your descendants will be as plentiful as the sand is on the seashore, as the stars are in the heaven, God keeps His promises. And so because God made a great nation out of the nation of Israel, Israel is His chosen people. The Scripture tells us that as Israel suffers in the wilderness... They're suffering the judgment of God. Yet in the midst of adversity, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of calamity, what does God provide for them? Manna. Every morning whenever they wake up, they walk out of their tent. While they are in the wilderness, while they're suffering hardship, and what's on the ground? Bread. They get tired of bread, and they say, God, this this bread's getting old, so God gives them quail. In the midst of the judgment of God, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their wilderness wanderings, what does God give them? He gives them a fire by night. In the midst of that cold desert night, He gives them a fire to keep them warm. In that hot desert heat, He gives them a cloud by day. He gives them water out of the rock. For 40 years, their clothes don't wear out. Why? Because in the midst of hardship and adversity, God blesses His people. He does not keep us from adversity, but He provides for us and protects us in the midst of adversity. Notice the text in Job. Go to Job chapter 1 verse 20. Job understands this great principle. In the midst of our trial, in the midst of our adversity, look at Job's response in verse 21. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the midst of our trial and adversity, oftentimes we fail to see the goodness of God. While Israel was wandering in the wilderness, there was a king 
king of Moab. His name was Balak. And he saw Israel, he saw the providence of God, he saw the power of God in the midst of Israel. He, he remembered how Israel crossed over the Red Sea, how God parted the Red Sea, how Pharaoh's army pursued Israel, and, and, and God in His great providence and His great sovereignty swallowed up the Egyptian army in the Red Sea, and Balak feared Israel. And so Balak went and he hired a prophet. He hired a, a, a fortune teller, and he, he hired a fortune teller called Balaam, and he said, I want you to curse Israel so that, so that whenever, whenever I attack Israel, that I'll be able to, to destroy them. And so Israel's minding their own business. They're down in the valley. They're down in the wilderness eating manna and quail and, and cloud by day, fire by night, God's providence. They're, they're unaware that Balak, the king of Moab, is trying to curse Israel. All they're doing is trying to survive, having funerals every day because day in and day out there's an entire generation of people that are dying and Israel's suffering in the midst of their adversity. And Balak has hired this fortune teller. And Balaam, the fortune teller, the, the, this prophet, goes up on top of the mountain to curse Israel. And on his way up to the mountain, his donkey decides to act up. We know the story. Balaam and his donkey is going up the mountain and the donkey goes off one side and Balaam gets off and beats his donkey and gets him back on the path. He goes off the other side. He gets off. He beats his donkey. Well, they're, they're going up top of the mountain so he can curse Israel. And finally, the, the, this donkey just stops in the middle and sits down. He gets off and he's beating the donkey again. The donkey looks at him and says, What's your deal? He says, I've been a good, obedient donkey my entire life. Why do you keep beating me? He says, well, you're going off the path. What blows my mind is not that the donkey talks, but that, that Balaam responds to this donkey. And, and Balaam says, well, you, you keep going off the path. He says, the reason I keep going off the path is because there's this giant angel in front of me, and I don't want to, I mean, seriously, there's an angel. And, and Balaam looks, and he sees the angel of the Lord standing in front of him, and all of a sudden he goes, oh, Yet what does Balaam do? He gets on his donkey, goes up on top of the mountain to curse Israel, and out of his mouth comes not curses, but blessings. He goes back and he tells Balak, he says, look, Balak, I tried to curse Israel, but I couldn't. He says, I'll give you more money, go curse them. Three different times that happens. And out of the mouth of Balaam, every single time come blessings and not curses. Now, Israel is completely oblivious to this. They don't have a clue that Balak even has an issue with Israel. So here's the question I have for us this morning. In the midst of our trial, in the midst of our adversity, where is Israel during all this? Suffering in the wilderness. Where is Israel during all of this time? They are burying people day in and day out. They are having hundreds of funerals a day. They're, they are in the midst of the judgment of God saying, saying, when is this calamity, when is this adversity going to be over? In the midst of our adversity, how much of God's goodness do we fail to see? How much of the providence and the protection of God are we ignorant of? You say, but preacher, you don't know what I'm going through in my life. No, but I know the faithfulness of our God. And I know that no matter what you're going through in your life, that God abounds in loving kindness. 
That He is a God full of grace. He is a God full of mercy. That judgment is His strange work. And that God desires to bless and not curse. How much of His goodness do we fail to see because we're focused on the adversity and the hardship of God saying, woe is me. You know, it's easy for us to praise God in the blessings. It's easy. In just a few days, we're all going to sit down with our family, our loved ones, our grandkids, our, our great-grandkids, and we're going we're gonna to eat until, until we explode. We're going to eat until we got food right here. And then once we got food right here, we're going to put in pecan pie and pumpkin pie and, and cobbler and everything like that. And then we're going to sit back in our, in our easy chairs and we're going to watch football. And, 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 and we're going to sit there and we're going to say, man, God is so good. Amen. It's easy to praise God in the blessing. But do we praise God for the hardships and adversity in our lives? Flip over to James chapter 2, verse 1. James says, Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials. I'm sorry, James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials and tribulation. If you keep reading, it says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be complete, lacking in nothing. James tells the church, and it's interesting, the circumstances surrounding the book of James... The church is in the midst of Nero and persecution, one of the one of the most cruel and, and brutal emperors in all the Roman Empire is, is taking and he's persecuting the church. The church is scattered throughout all the uh, throughout all of Asia Minor and, and they're being burnt at the stake, they're being beheaded, they're being fed to, to wild beasts. And this is what James says, consider it all joy. Church, when they light you on fire, consider it all joy. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. James isn't the only one to say this. In fact, 1 Peter was also written during that same time. And and, uh, I know I've shared this story with you before, but it's worth sharing again. Uh, Nero, uh, one of the most brutal uh, emperors in all the Roman Empire, uh, wanted to be an emperor of great notoriety. He wanted to be an emperor who was known for for his his buildings and for uh, for his... progress for the Roman Empire. The only problem was he came into power whenever Rome was already at at the height of its civilization. So in order to be one of those emperors who was known and who had great fame, what he decided was he said, I'll destroy Rome and then rebuild it. And because because I will be the one, the emperor who rebuilds Rome, I'll I'll go down in Roman history as great and and my fame will will be unparalleled. So he burns down Rome. The only problem was he burned down Rome. And the Romans, there are hundreds and thousands of people that die. Their property and their their lives are completely destroyed. And so his plan backfires. And so Nero, in an effort to, to, to stop the bleeding, he says... He says, I, I gotta blame this on somebody, so he blames the Christians. He says, it was it was those those followers of Jesus the Nazarite. It was them that burned Rome. And so, in an effort 
to get back in the good graces of the Roman citizens, what he would do is he would gather around, he would, he would round up all the Christians, he would cover them in tar and pitch, he would put them on, on stakes amongst the, uh, the courtyard in Rome, and he would light them on fire so that, that the courtyard could be lit up at night. He used Christians as human street lamps. And this is what Peter writes to the church in the midst of what's going on. Chapter 4, verse 12. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. (coughs) Peter's not being figurative when he says, "My My beloved, do not think it's strange. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial as it comes upon you. If you keep reading, he says, But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that all of the revel so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so this is the question I have for us tonight, church, this morning. When we encounter trials, hardships, adversity, do we give God glory? Or do we moan and groan? Do we throw ourselves a pity party? Do we curl up in our bed and say, woe is me. Think I'll go eat some worms. What is our response when adversity and when trial comes upon us? It is in the hardships and the adversity in our lives that we have the greatest opportunity to display the glory of Christ. When was Christ's glory most vividly seen? When He hung upon a Roman cross. It wasn't in the Sermon on the Mount. While that was a wonderful exhibition of of the glory of Christ when he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount and he said, blessed are the meek, blessed are the the poor in spirit. When when he gave this, this wonderful oration and hundreds and thousands of people flocked to hear Christ, was that whenever God, God exalted Christ? No. God exalted Christ on a cruel Roman cross in the greatest amount of adversity in the greatest amount of trial, and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Why do we, as His followers, expect God to exalt us with anything other than adversity? We most clearly and visibly display the glory of Christ in the midst of adversity. When life squeezes us, when the world looks at us and we've lost our, our, our son or our daughter and, and, and they look at us and they say, how do you go on? You say, because Jesus is my all in all. Though the world may take everything that I have, Jesus is why I go on. Whenever we're stricken with with disease, whenever, whenever we lose our job, whenever, whenever the world hits us square in the mouth and we respond with praise be to God. Look back at Job chapter 2. I love this statement from the book of Job. 
Job chapter 2, verse 10. As his wife responds like most people do. His wife said, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Look at what God did to you. Job said, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Job acknowledged one thing. God is sovereign. The reason I'm undergoing this is because God is either directly or indirectly behind this. He doesn't in any way pass the blame. He doesn't say, well, this is Satan doing this, not God. He says, shall we not accept good from God? Shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? He understands the sovereignty of God, but he also understands. He also understands that in the greatest amount of hardship, the, we have the greatest opportunity to show Christ. I want to flip over with you to John chapter 17. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He set the sitting for you. Jesus is moments away from being arrested. I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, less than an hour away from, from being arrested, from being tried before Annas, from standing before Caiaphas, from standing before Pilate, from being flogged and beaten, nailed to a cross, hung and killed. Jesus is praying, not for Himself, but for His disciples. And he's praying, I believe, in earshot of his disciples. He tells his disciples, he said, stay awake, wait, pray for me. And then he goes a little bit further, and I believe that Jesus is praying within earshot of his disciples so they can hear everything that he says. John chapter 17, verse 14. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 15. This is what I want us to hear. Jesus prays, I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. The prayer of Christ is not for removal from difficulty. He says, I don't ask you, God, to take them out of the world. Don't take them out of the the, the circumstance and the setting where they're going to come under the most hardship, the most fire, the most persecution, the most, most difficulty. Don't take them out of that, but... In the midst of that, protect them. So that as they are suffering, Christ can be glorified. So that as they are suffering, so let your light shine before men, so that they may see your good works and so that they may see your good works and give glory to God in heaven. As Peter is being crucified upside down, as Paul is being beheaded, as Stephen is being stoned, as John Mark is being dragged through the the, the streets of Alexandria until he dies, as, as Andrew is being crucified, as all of these followers will suffer martyrdom, as John is being put in a pot of boiling oil, and then when they figured out they couldn't kill him, they ship him off to Patmos. As they are suffering persecution, Keep them. Protect them. In the midst of their wilderness, provide for them. That God may receive glory. The church is not glorified when it has a bigger building, more money, more facilities. The church 
is glorified when the people of God look like Jesus in the midst of hardship. The world doesn't look at these giant facilities and say, wow, the blessings of God are just pouring out on those people. No, the world looks at their co-worker and says, they just lost a son. How in the world are they still praising God? They've just been diagnosed with cancer. How in the world are they still praising God? They've just, they've just buried their spouse. How in the world are they still praising God? That's when the world says, there might be something to that Jesus. You know, you're sitting out there this morning. And it's come, it's become obvious to you that there's no way that you could give praise and glory to God in the midst of adversity. The only way that that happens is when you realize that this world is not our home. That we are temporary dwellers in this place. And that my hope is not in this world, but my hope is in another world. My hope is in Christ. The only way that, that it's possible to give praise through adversity and praise through difficulty is through a vibrant relationship with Christ. Because this world is not my home. The only way that, that we can give praise and glory to God in the midst of hardship is through a relationship with Christ. And if you're here this morning, and, and everything that, that I've been talking about, about giving praise to God in the midst of cancer, in the midst of loss, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of, of, of financial difficulty, whatever it is, and you say, Preacher, I don't know how to do that. I can't do that. You're exactly right. You can't do that. But in Christ, we can do all things. And this morning, if you're here and you say, Preacher, I don't know how to do that. Let me invite you, not to give praise to God in the midst of your adversity, but let me invite you to yield your life to the Lordship of Christ. To stop striving for the things of this world. You know, the book of Mark, chapter 8, verse 34 and 35, said, He who wishes to save his life will lose it. But he who loses life for my sake in the gospel shall find it. If you are trying and you're striving for the things of this world, the scripture tells us that you will always come up empty. There's a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is death and destruction. The scripture says that we come into this world sinners. We lie, we cheat, we steal because that's who we are. But the Scripture also says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 said, God made Him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of Christ. And the only way that you can respond like Peter and James and John and Stephen and Andrew, the only way you can respond like Christ is if you have been born again. And the only way to be born again is to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. 
this morning. If you need to be born again, we want to invite you to come. In just a few moments, we're going to have a hymn of invitation. And this morning, maybe you need to come and be born again. But maybe this morning, you need to come and give praise to God in the midst of your adversity. Maybe you're going through hardship. Maybe you're going through difficulty. And you want to simply stop and praise God for your adversity. I want to invite you to come. Grab the person in the pew next to you and say, come pray with me. Come give praise to God in the midst of my hardship. Let's go to the Lord with the word of prayer. God, as we come to this season of Thanksgiving, as we come to to this time where we give thanks to You, Lord, may we not simply give thanks to You for the good things You've done, but may we give thanks to You in all circumstances. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who needs to be born again, they say, Preacher, I would love to give praise in my adversity and my hardship, but I just can't. Because I've never given my life to Christ. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come. Maybe you need to come and kneel at this altar and praise God for the circumstances in your life. Whatever God is speaking to you this morning, may you follow in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray.